welcome back finally to our Ask podcast where we hope you will be obtaining some more secret knowledge with us today. We are on season three. We have had an, uh, you know a bit of a hiatus lately, but we're really excited to be back in the saddle and with a fascinating guest today. Um, I'm Mrs. Summers, the Deputy Head of English and Drama at John Hamden Grammar School. And this... Uh, I am Mr. Till and I'm the Head of English and it is great to be back. I feel like we're the once and future podcast. Absolutely. And we are back and later there'll be quick fire round, there'll be a clue... All the stuff that the fans love. There are fans, right? There are definitely fans out there. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are, sir. And this is... Uh, I'm Daniel. I'm a Year 13 A-level student doing Geography, Economics, Chemistry and German. Wow. I am Ben. I'm a Year 12 A-level student doing Geography, Maths and Computing. Nice. I'm Shane. I'm doing English, Geography and Chemistry A-levels. That's it. I'm biased towards you already, Shane. Fantastic. And of course, we have our brilliant and esteemed guest. He's looking to find who that could possibly be already. Um, It is Mr. Misavi, our recent uh, acquirement, let's say, as the new head of geography. Very, very, very knowledgeable individual. And I'm sure he will demonstrate that today, just to put some pressure on him. And he's going to be talking about climate change. So I'm going to start with the big question. Why climate change, sir? Every day. Oh, first of all, let me say uh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. That's, it's such a privilege to be here. I think I'm a little too excited to be in this room. I'm not going to think, but I'll do my best. Uh, all of us have a passport, am I right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, in in many countries of the world, indeed in the richest country in the world, America, some forty percent of people have passports only. Now, passports are critical. They allow us to navigate around the world. They are our national identity in some respects. Now, I start with passports, you'll see the link in a second, because some problems in the world, some issues don't have passports, much like many people in the world. These issues, much like those people, they transcend national boundaries and they are so significant, they are called wicked problems, things we simply cannot solve by ourselves. We need international cooperation, we need everyone to be aware of them, for only then can we solve them. Now, you might think that climate change is a nebulous idea that will affect people in far-flung countries in the distant future, but I can promise you that's not the case. So, the simple reason why I chose climate change, it is the most pressing issue of our time. Ooh, that is a big answer for us to live up to, absolutely. So, let's put it out to our provocative students for some questions. Um, As you may well be aware, uh, there are many, well, some scientists, particularly in the uh, Northern American plane, uh, which uh, which might deny climate change and instead try to boost their own economy. What do you say to this? They're not scientists. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, at the recent IPCC sixth report, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's the UN's research organisation for climate change, found that some ninety nine point six percent of accredited peer reviewed scientists uh, believe in the fact that it is anthropogenic, meaning caused by people, and that it is affecting people now. So the scientific community agrees more on climate change than almost any other issue in science. That's the simple principle. Not to refute the point that you made, there are definitely many people in certain, let's say, intellectual or quasi-intellectual communities who have skepticism about it. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, at another point. Absolutely. Well, good start. Good response there. We all know being vegan and vegetarian helps with global warming and climate change, but if the whole of the UK were to go vegan, how would that actually help? Well, the UK contributes about 4% to global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. 
Uh, that's partly due to its own emissions within national borders, but also virtual emissions, those that we contribute by buying products from other countries, for example, or by funding, say, coal power stations in other countries, just as an example. So uh, let's take this simple point. If the UK becomes carbon neutral, it will have a just above negligible impact on our efforts to mitigate climate change. That's the first thing. So this, is, uh, this relates back to the notion of it being a wicked problem. One country, especially a country with a relatively small population, cannot make much of a difference. Uh, so no, you going vegan and everyone in the UK going vegan will not be a significant force in mitigating climate change, unfortunately. Can I ask a follow-up on that? <laughs> Given that the so, UK might be small, but punches above its weight uh, culturally, yes. might not the impact of Britain taking a lead through its culture, you know, our, our music industry, our theatre industry, our film and TV has a huge reach, might that not produce a cultural impact uh, in other nations too? It may indeed. Uh, there are number of examples where that has happened. For instance, uh, the UK's attitudes towards uh, beef and towards dairy have influenced some of our former colonies in terms of their cultural habits. For instance, uh, in, uh, in Kenya, there's been a recent transition towards uh, soya milk, as partly in relation to climate change, also in relation to cost and to health benefits in, in comparison to regular milk. So yes, there is some evidence of the cultural links of the UK, the, the soft power of the UK indeed. I suppose my point was simply, if you're going to calculate the impacts of our direct uh, actions to, to reduce our emissions, would it actually have an impact on our efforts to mitigate climate change? No, it probably wouldn't. Uh, but yes, there are, I would also say there are, there are some unknowns or at least things that we can't predict. So while it's plausible that uh, our, our efforts within our own country, for example, at the UN General Assembly might influence other countries to follow suit, uh, I can't say that for sure because it hasn't happened yet. Mm. I just I wonder what you think, sir, about the idea that climate change is an inherently selfish result of the higher income country in this case, because you know the higher income country has the utility to both benefit from what is causing global emissions, but also has the utility to solve the issue, mm. and yet yeah, is receiving the lowest consequences from it. It's disadvantaging the lowest income countries and the newly emerging economies who are trying to industrialise to improve their economy and they're being sort of told not to in favour of reducing climate change when really, would you say it's a higher income country's problem? So if I could just, if I could interpret your question, you're talking about the idea of climate change justice. Yes, yeah, yeah, that sure. We are responsible, we're not necessarily affected as and yeah. we aren't particularly willing to make the greatest efforts ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. This is bound up in many issues uh, that make problems that, are, that go beyond climate change difficult to solve. Uh, a person called Adrian Parr wrote a book called The Wrath of Capital, where he argues that our entire economic and political system being based around capitalism means that our motivation is primarily around profit. And we, whether we on an individual level don't necessarily believe in that, whether we think there are, we are above that, we operate within a system in which we contribute to that daily. And it's very difficult to extricate ourselves from the capitalist system and live a good quality of life in this country and in any Western country. So uh, it's partly a function of the global system created many hundreds of years ago, but really uh, enforced after World War II that... Uh, on an individual level and indeed on a national level it's difficult to get ourselves out of a position in which we benefit from inequality, in which we contribute to climate change and in which we are reluctant to solve it. If we start with the reluctance to solve it, if we 
act to mitigate climate change as one country, then we lose out versus other countries. It's called the free rider problem. So let's say one country tries to behave in a cooperative manner, in a sustainable manner. Well, they are actually spending more potentially on efforts to mitigate and adapt to climate change. And arguably their businesses, for example, are becoming less competitive versus other countries. Many governments are unwilling to legislate to make that happen since their businesses lose out, our economy suffers, and consequently they lose votes in elections. That's a short-term political calculation that most governments make today, unfortunately. Uh, it, it takes a very brave person and politician to go against that particular flow. So as I'm teaching with my year 12s, the only way in which we can solve this injustice is through an international agreement in which every country agrees to support each other to mitigate climate change. Otherwise, that national self-interest will supersede any whole world community efforts. Uh, it's a big question. And it's a difficult one for me to answer in one minute. I hope I've got somewhere there. <laughs> I think so. I'm, I'm going to try and be more provocative because apparently that's my word of the day. Go for it. So you talk about flaws of capitalism and how the, the problem of kind of the profit-driven motive and so on. But isn't it true that, you know, capitalism basically, for all its flaws, takes out, you know, up to about 100,000 people out of poverty like almost every day? Like it's of all the things that has huge amounts of issues with inequalities and so on but actually particularly in the low-income countries that is the thing that is really helping them lift their competitiveness and they are improving extreme poverty you know is its lowest level it's ever been so have we any right i think this links to the shame question have we any right to stop those countries lifting themselves out of poverty by whatever means they find necessary mm, it's an interesting notion so You've heard lies, damn lies, and statistics. I'm sure you all know that phrase, right? One of the key debates in development studies and in climate change is the notion that capitalism has indeed elevated millions of people out of poverty. Indeed, the United Nations says that its millennium development goals between 2000 and 2015 brought some billion people out of poverty during that time. Well, what we find is that 800 million of those were in China. Now, China achieved that through what it what's often called capitalism with Chinese characteristics. That is not really pure capitalism at all. It's heavy state involvement in the kind of direct effort to elevate people out of poverty. So it depends, I suppose, how we're defining capitalism. Are we defining it as free market capitalism with minimal state involvement? In which case, I would argue that it's benefited a very few people. Free market capitalism, as many of you here may know, you all probably may know, tends to accumulate the wealth to the hands of a few people, to the detriment of most. The only reason that societies exist with capitalism, and that doesn't happen, is because of government intervention. It's because of uh, the pluralist voting system that we have, where we elect uh, leaders who we, don't, who we want to resist that. So the best capitalist countries in the world in terms of distributing wealth and elevating them out of poverty are those where the governments actually uh, install mechanisms that uh, curtail some of capitalists' um, most excessive uh, attributes. So if you take America versus the UK, America's Gini coefficient is about 45, which means that uh, it's highly unequal. The UK is about 36. It's more equal. Now, if you look at all the aspects of society, Britain does better in, for example, distributing wealth through progressive taxation, through providing free healthcare, through environmental regulation. All things that, if you were to ask a pure capitalist like Milton Friedman, they are anathema to that capital, uh, capitalist ideal. Uh, so I would take umbrage with the view that capitalism itself is the reason why uh, people have been elevated out of poverty. Mm, I enjoyed that answer. 
Um, there have been some talks recently about potentially leapfrogging stages in development. Could you explain what leapfrogging is and perhaps name some examples of how high-income countries could help developing countries leapfrog these stages? Fantastic, yeah. Leapfrogging is one of the reasons to be optimistic about climate change. So as you know, every industrialized country today got here through a vast increase in CO2 emissions through greater reliance on fossil fuels. That doesn't need to be the case from now on. We have technologies that can increase our energy output, renewable energy, nuclear power, and that means that we can get from a point of low-level agrarian societies dependent on farming to highly developed economy based on research, quaternary sector, urbanized economies, where the increase in pollution, air pollution, water pollution, waste pollution, that we see in all the rich countries today, where it doesn't happen. Uh, there are a few examples. So one a small example that might help you understand this is if you go to Peru. In, um, in the mountains of Peru, there's a village called Chamba Montera. And in, this is just a random story that I've got for you. Right? In Chamba Montera, they've built a micro hydro scheme. So it's a small hydroelectricity power station that provides electricity for manufacturing in this remote village. And they've become one of Peru's main uh, producers of textiles. Now, normally, that would lead to increased water pollution, increased air pollution in the area, but none of those outcomes have happened. It's an example of a leapfrogging technology that's only existed in the last century. Uh, there are many, many more examples like this. Now, the question, of course, is how do we facilitate those technologies becoming prevalent in low-income countries? Well, this is, again, where global governance is needed. So one, uh, one aspect of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015 was the commitment by high-income countries to support lower-income countries in exactly this technological leapfrogging. That example I just gave to you of Chan Montero was partly funded by the Japanese government. It exemplifies this uh, relationship. That's, uh, that's what le te leapfrogging technology is, and it is definitely the reason why I'm optimistic that we can actually overcome this great challenge. I'm glad we're going in a happy, hopeful direction. Mm. Oh, you want to follow up? Yeah. Okay, go for it. <laughs> With leapfrogging, obviously, we're talking about reducing future emissions, but I suppose a, perhaps a more pressing problem is the emissions that already exist in the atmosphere. Yeah. And, you know, that could result in, let's just throw around the heat death of the universe before we can even think about oh, leapfrogging. Great shade. Thanks for that. I just I, thought, I, you know, I'd, I'd brighten up the day. Thanks. But that's obviously about reducing future emissions. Would you mind talking about, like, carbon capture schemes where we're mm. taking emissions that already exist out of the atmosphere? Yes. In Iceland, they use geothermal power to draw air through a through hot water, essentially. The hot water, when, when you have... CO2 meeting water, it dissolves some of it into carbonic acid, hence you get sparkling water, which you may have had in a fancy restaurant. That sparkling water goes down into the ground, and because of the unique geology of Iceland, the carbonic acid reacts with the basalt in the ground, crystallizing and forming solid carboniferous rock. When the water comes back up, it's got no CO2 in it. Consequently, you've reduced CO2 in the atmosphere. A couple of problems with that. Number one, Iceland is able to do that because of its geothermal energy. So it's in, in, incredibly energy intensive to do that. Uh, number two, cost. Number three, there are other ways to reduce CO2 emissions that don't involve highly expensive carbon capture. Uh, of course, the point that you raised about CO2, it remains in the atmosphere for about 200 years, which is why it's much worse actually than methane, which only has a half-life in the atmosphere of about five years. And so that, although methane is a stronger greenhouse gas, it's actually less of a problem. Carbon capture right now is unfeasible on a global scale. And much like geoengineering, for example, giant mirrors in space, that shouldn't be our focus. 
when it comes to uh, solving climate change. Very interesting. I'm learning a lot here. I'm writing it all down. I'm going to <laughs> process this for the future. Ben, did you want to jump in there? Um, I'd love to jump in, but uh, so far right now, there are just under 11,000 species of animal at threat of extinction. Say we listen to the people that climate change doesn't exist and we just continue as we are, how many more do you reckon will go extinct? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, just a couple of uh, facts for you. So it's thought that the extinction rate uh, currently seen today is third only to the Permian ex extinction about 500 million years ago and, of course, the KT event of 69 million years ago, asteroid dinosaurs. So the rate of uh, extinctions is unprecedented. And it's principally due to the rate of climate change, which is equally unprecedented. I can't give you a number on the amount that will change. That's all based on our projections. So, you know, climate models, they suggest, based on different decisions that we make, different climatic outcomes. Business as usual, BAU, it's often caused. It's often called by the end of the uh, 21st century, so 2100, it's anticipated will lead to a seven degrees rise in, in uh, temperature, which would be pretty much uninhabitable for most people around the world and also for most species. Marine species are likely to be more effective, especially pelagic marine species, those that live near the surface and on the coast. They're most sensitive to temperature changes, think dolphins, manatees, those kinds of things. So you'll, be, you'll have dead ocean areas where you go swimming, where you uh, go uh, snorkeling, that kind of thing is going to be uh, seriously depleted. Species that live at higher latitudes, which are, are rising in temperature more, so north of Canada, Antarctica, the Arctic Circle, they're going to be more significantly affected. Now, of course, other things, variables that matter. If we deplete the rainforest and cause rainforest fragmentation with roads, for example, that leaves species within rainforest to be more vulnerable. If we don't deplete the rainforest, if we decide not to go business as usual, then it turns out rainforests are actually very resilient to climatic change. They have their own different microclimates they produce, which means that species survive. I, unfortunately, that's a question I can't give you a number to. But I can tell you, business as usual would spell disaster for biodiversity on the planet. Wow, that was cheery. <laughs> the, op the optimism <laughs> didn't last long. <laughs> sorry, you I'm asked me a question that, that <laughs> yeah. brings out my optimism. You've, you've mentioned two things. You mentioned, you used the phrase global governance yes. in, in order to, to spread technologies. And you've hinted at the idea of public apathy. Mm. Or if we haven't, then it seems to be an issue that people have talked about for a long time. And yet there doesn't seem to be the democratic will for the kind of radical action perhaps that would make a difference. Yes, um, have we found in climate change uh, something that democracy is not good at and is not actually the optimum system of governance? It's, so I, okay, this is a small flex. Well, it's not a flex, but it's a, it's a name drop. I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on exactly this idea. Why is it that climate change, such a massive problem, ha has nonetheless been seen with great apathy by society. What's the situation there? Well, I'll give you a contrasting example to help understand this. It turns out that democracy and our ability to be impassioned actually can be drawn out quite effectively. Uh, in the 1970s, we were using chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, to cool our fridges. We didn't know this, but unfortunately, when chlorofluorocarbons escape the atmosphere, they react with ozone in the atmosphere, causing rapid depletion through a chain reaction. Ten years later, we discovered a gigantic hole in Antarctica and ozone thinning everywhere. That would have spelled just disaster of epic proportions if it had continued. But in 1987, the Montreal Protocol came, uh, came about. Countries, uh, all members of the UN, agreed to phase out as quickly as possible CFCs. And that's been remarkably effective. 
and it's thought that by 2050, the ozone layer will have recovered to 1950 levels. One of the great achievements in global governance. So we ask ourselves, why was that possible, whereas mitigating climate change isn't? There are a couple of things. First of all, there's a clear, visible problem. We can, you can put it on a headline, hole in ozone layer. There's a clear, visible impact on us, health impact, skin cancer. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, there's a clear solution. We know exactly what will happen if we take this simple step. If we ban this chemical, we know that it'll have this impact. Climate change, unfortunately, suffers in that it doesn't meet those three things. Mm -hmm. Number one, we're uncertain about the causes in some extent and the future impacts. Number two, it is enormously challenging to mitigate it, partly because the CFC output of the world in the 1970s was caused by just a few countries. So if they stopped, then that was going to that was going to have a dramatic impact. With climate change, it's far more diffuse the causes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, can democracy solve these problems? Well, I think recent evidence suggests that we're getting there. Uh, the attitudes of Americans towards climate change is quite infamously uh, more apathetic than in a number of other developed countries. But if you look at the latest Gallup polls, over the last 20 years, uh, perception of climate change as a great threat has increased by 10 to 15 percent, even amongst the most kind of hard right Republicans who tend to be anti-climate. Mm -hmm. uh, that has partly resulted in Joe Biden's election because he campaigned on uh, a clear focus of spending a significant amount of government money to mitigate climate change. Now, if there's one thing that voters are concerned about, it's public spending and resultant impact on taxes. Americans violently despise rising taxes. But they were willing to accept that on this occasion in the belief that climate change was a significant enough problem to solve. There are definite limitations that remain. And the better we do at presenting climate change as something that affects everyone and as something that uh, we can actually solve, then I think that uh, looking forward, there are reasons, again, to be optimistic about it. I don't think it's, uh, I'm not fatalistic about the relationship between democracy and our ability to solve problems like climate change. No, I'm not. I feel better again now. Okay. <laughs> Relatedly, how impressed with you were you with the kind of global efforts at COP26? How did you regard that in the, you know, was it great success, partial success? total disaster what's your evaluation of it well if you listen to Greta Thunberg it was an <laughs> absolute disaster they are stealing our lives and our future future uh, it was predictable I'll say that so you have different camps that have their various interests you have China and India the newly emerging economies as Shane referenced who have a des desperate desire to develop you have the high-income countries who are being pointed to by all the other countries as responsible for climate change result is any solution to climate change that, that means um, HICs spending more money and newly emerging economies spending less money on industrialization is going, to enormous, is going to automatically come up against a great roadblock. On the last day of COP26 is the most powerful example. One line in the COP26 treaty you're probably aware of about the, the phasing out of coal and fossil fuels. So uh, fossil fuel for energy production contributes about 30% of our emissions in total. If we were to phase out fossil fuels, that would make a dramatic difference. China produces more CO2 than any other country, even America. The Chinese and the Indians work together to have the language changed to phasing down rather than phasing out, so that by 2050, they would hope to remove uh, coal and uh, oil and gas from their energy mix. Unfortunately, as we know, that's too late, depending on the kind of outcome that we want. If, if peak fossil fuels 
are only reached in the next few years and phased out by 2050. That's unfortunately too late for the kind of future that we want. Uh, when it comes to COP26, there was, however, one key thing that well, I was very positive about. It was more publicized. It was more spoken about than any other treaty in the past. I think people in this school uh, were very aware of it. I was speaking to my students about it. They seemed to be quite aware of it. Every Wednesday, I did a News in the World uh, session with them. They seemed to know a lot about what was going on. That made me feel positive about it. Having said that, I don't speak to, I would say, a representative sample of society. So I'm not sure necessarily that this translates to everyone's uh, awareness of COP26, but certainly it was more spoken about than any other climate conference that I'm aware of. Okay. Short, not quite quick fire round, but short thing. Okay. Three particular things you think we should be hopeful about for the future, because I want to end on a happy note. Climate change. Climate change. Okay, <laughs> number one, technology. <laughs> so technology is a big debate about whether it can actually solve problems, but in many cases it can. Uh, Renewables have become 10 times cheaper in the last 10 years. Battery storage is dramatically improving and becoming cheaper. That's essentially, that's uh, renewable as Achilles heel. If we can solve intermittency using batteries, then we can provide the leapfrogging technologies to completely radically transform every country's energy mix, one. Number two, uh, the spread of democracy around the world. While there are notable examples of this not being the case, in the last 40 years, democracy has proliferated around the world. That's the second reason to be hopeful. Democracies tend to be more supportive of global governance agreements because the norms of international cooperation uh, tend to be more accepted by democracies than autocracies. The third reason is uh, average education around the world. Now, education is absolutely not the panacea to uh, solve climate change because you have very educated people, for example, in America that nonetheless are skeptical about climate change. But education affords us the ability to vote more accurately and also to uh, develop solutions that will, on a local scale, for example, in High Wycombe, on a national scale, Britain, and on a global scale, uh, mitigate and adapt climate change. Those are the reasons why I'm hopeful. I could say much more, but I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so totally different segment. I'm going to hand over to Sir. To we'd, like to, we'd like to get to know our staff guests yes, for a little quick fire round. Uh -huh. Are we ready for the quick fire round? The quick fire round starts right uh -huh. now. What's your favorite day of the week? Friday. What's your favorite film? Gladiator. If you're an animal, which animal would you Cheetah. be? Uh, Favourite musical? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that is... <laughs> That's its own answer. It would be, could... be the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> no, great answer. If you could teach another subject? History. If you could have another job? I'd work at the UNDP in the United Nations. Oh, nice. What do you have for breakfast most often? <laughs> uh, oats with freeze-dried fruit. Marvel or DC? Oh, oh you're going to make... An enemy and me, uh, Marvel, just because of their recent record. Here endeth the quick fire round. Very nice. Do you want to add a sneaky clue in now? There so is a clue. So we're going big on the we're going big on the link between a number of cryptic clues across episodes for our new series, and so people might get it from the first clue. What links a number of things? The first thing is this. Here we go. A. <laughs> wow. Wow, sir. The first clue is A. Enlightening. Yeah. I mean, it's actually better than last time when <laughs> Sir said, I've already given you the clue, you should have been listening and nobody knew <laughs> what the heck was going on. Wait, it's not A, and then you're going to tell us the clue. That is, that no, no, is that the is clue. The clue is A. 
as the worst. You are going to have to be a multiple podcast listener to get the clue, Fair but enough. there'll be a huge prize that will involve photographs and cake and bubble bath and all kinds of exciting bubble, things. Bubble bath. That's an interesting incentive. How is that related to climate change? As long as it hasn't got any microplastics in its service. It will have no microplastics. I almost guarantee. Almost, almost guarantee. Oh dear. I, I think almost guarantee that it will, unfortunately. Oh no! <laughs> Forget uh, the bubble bath. Emphasize the cake. <laughs> cake, definitely. Also has microplastic. Vegan cake, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. It'll be fine. Okay, thank you. Goodness me, have I learned a lot today, and I'm sure you guys yeah. also have too. It's been really fantastic to have Mr. Masabi as our esteemed guest today. You know, an encyclopedic knowledge of an incredible number of things. So I'm quite, you know, in awe, I have to say. And what fantastic panellists we've had today. Really, really good. Lovely yes. to have two year, year 13s and a year 12 with us with Shane and Daniel and Ben. Been fantastic. They've already contributed absolutely beautifully. Sirs, you know, he's been around. He's, you know, he's... he's I was here. I was he present. Was here. We can't say any more than that. Exactly. That is, you know, that's, that's something, isn't it, sir? But brilliant. And of course, a massive thank you to our lovely producers, our lovely tech team who've got, you know, we've got fancy headphones today. Goodness knows what we're doing with them. But I'm doing as I'm told, basically, which is the best thing to do when Tom's around because he knows what he's doing. So thank you to Tom and Ben and everybody else involved in the tech team. Thank you to everybody for listening to the Ask podcast. We sincerely hope uh, you've enjoyed yourself and you've attained some secret knowledge. Uh, do tune in next time, which hopefully will be extremely soon, extremely yeah. efficient. Goodness knows who's going to be our next guest, but it's going to be just as exciting as today. Absolutely. Like and subscribe and yes, all of other and all YouTubers say. All that kind of thing. YouTube and all that. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yes. And let's just say bye and au revoir and go to period five. Take care. <laughs> We're going to have a game of leapfrog. Absolutely. <laughs>